Let's pray together. Uh, Father, uh, we come uh, not for a lesson tonight. We don't come uh, to have our ears tickled, to have our uh, just have our minds engaged. Uh, but Lord, we do come, and we ask you to make us different. Lord, even if it's imperceptible, even if we can't tell, we know uh, what your word, coupled with your spirit, can do in our lives. Oh, Lord, we want to be formed more into your image. Do this, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, I consider myself uh, an avid endorsement. Uh, I love air conditioning. Uh, I, I really enjoy heat when it's cold. Um, I don't understand those of you who like to put on heavy packs um, on your back. I really don't understand sleeping on the ground in the cold. Um, but, you know, I am in the midst of a midlife crisis. I just turned 40 about a month ago, and uh, people do stupid things uh, when they turn 40. Uh, so I, I do, I, I consider myself in this midlife crisis, and uh, I just want to imagine if it, what would happen if I converted from being an avid indoorsman to an avid outdoorsman. And let's say you, you guys know my sabbatical is coming up, and we are going out west, and uh, let's just imagine I just ditched my family, and I said, I was going to do my thing. And uh, I said, you know what, I, as this avid outdoorsman, I want to hike the Continental Divide Trail. If you don't know about Continental Divide Trail, I didn't know anything until this week. And it starts in New Mexico, and it ends in Montana. It's 2,000 miles long. The, the Continental Divide Trail is extremely rugged. You just follow the crest of the Rocky Mountains north. There are few places to resupply. Only 25 people a year even attempt it. And of those 25, very few completed. Let's just imagine that's what I did. I go to J&H, you know, out there by the mall, and I said, hey, you know, uh, I know I'm 40, but uh, I'm, I'm going to do this thing. And they said, all right, here's a really good pair of boots, top of the line, top of the line, sleeping bag, top of the line, backpack. You might need a couple other things. Here's some websites to check out. You, you should be set to go. Imagine I go home, I, got, I have all my stuff, I make a plan, I've got my maps, I'm all set, right? Not at all, actually. I mean, I'm going to need a map, I'm going to need a sleeping bag, but the most important thing for me to prepare is my body. Now, I'm a 40-year-old geezer at this point. I'm over the hill. My body's never going back to its 23-year-old state, no matter how much kale, how much grilled chicken I eat, no matter how many times I go to burn boot camp, I'm not going back. Even if I could go back to being 23, my body's still not prepared to live at 14,000 feet. You and I both know what that would look like. I'd be sick as a dog. It would be a fool's errand for me to attempt to hike the Continental Divide Trail. But don't worry, I'm, I'm more likely to binge the Marvel series on Disney Plus than do anything this extreme. But the only thing more foolish for me to do than to attempt to make this hike was for me to attempt this hike while recruiting others that I would lead to take the hike with me. Because I'm not only putting myself in danger, I'd be putting a lot of other people in danger too. Now this might sound like a bunch of BS and it certainly kind of is. But this is exactly what happens in Christian ministry all the time. People seek out Christian leadership because it sounds like such a noble endeavor. 
I mean, helping people for the sake of Jesus? What matters more than that? But there's a really dark side to Christian ministry, even if you have the best of intentions. Because what happens is you go to Christian ministry the same way you go to everything else in your life. At some point, as you grow into an adult, you become aware of what your strengths are. At some point, as you grow into an adult, you, you, you have an idea of what kind of effort you have to give to the world. And so you bring your effort, you bring your strengths, and you think that's going to work. Now, it might work in your profession. It might work if you serve other nonprofits. But those things have very limited use in ministry. In fact, if that's your approach, you're going to end up like I would be if I attempted the Continental Divide Trail. You think you've got good gear, you think you're all set, but you're actually very ill-prepared. Now today, uh, we're ordaining four folks, Paul for Elder, and Hayden Logan, Brian for Deacon, and you guys know them. They're really talented. If you're a business owner, you really want to hire them. They're smart, they're hardworking, and you like to be their neighbor, too. They're pretty, they're pretty enjoyable to be around. I think they probably bring their trash cans in when they're supposed to. <laughs> but even with all this personal charisma, all this hard work, all this talent, it's not going to cut it. Those tools aren't going to work. The tools they're really going to need are spelled out in our passage tonight in 1 Timothy chapter 4. If they use these tools, they will be equipped for the ministry that God has set forth for them. If they use these tools, they will be reliable guides for us as we trek this journey called life. So let's read the passage together. Chapter 4, verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example of speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, the exhortation to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been with us the last several weeks, you know, uh, that we've been in First Timothy. I just, I mean, this would be, a, if you were just going to pick any text to preach at an ordination service, this would this would probably make your top ten. So, I, honestly, I've kind of gone at a pace so that I would hit this text on this Sunday. But if you've been with us, you know uh, that First Timothy is written by Paul to Timothy. Paul is the elder statesman here. Timothy is the younger understudy. He's the apprentice. Paul is out of town. Timothy is in the church, the church of Ephesus. And Paul is instructing Timothy on how to lead the church. And part of the reason, part of the way to lead the church is that he's got to gather up other leaders around him. We looked at that in chapter 3, these elders and these deacons. And so now he's got Timothy who's trying to lead while he's absent. It's not a secret letter. This isn't just a Paul and Timothy kind of thing. This is really intended to be overheard by the rest of the church, too. And what we picked up on is that Timothy has a very challenging task. The church of Ephesus didn't call Timothy. 
They don't want him to be a part of their church, let alone lead it. They think he's too young. See that verse 12? He's biracial, which was an obstacle for him. His mom was a Jew and his dad was Greek. In addition to his age and his ethnicity, Timothy was not a take-charge kind of guy. Now, these are Timothy's challenges, but challenge is universal for ministry. Ministry is gut-wrenching work. Paul knew that, and he said as such. He says, he's got three passages that are things that I'm going to read for you. Now, Paul wasn't this guy who would say, hey, we're well, going to trust God, everything's okay. You know, we're all headed to heaven here. Everything's good. Everything works out for good. Low are loved by God and called according to his purpose. He didn't use that kind of language. He said he was really honest about his struggles. Second Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. Which what he says. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So, Brian, aren't you excited about going into this? 2 Corinthians 7, 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear within. Sounds good, right, Logan? 2 Corinthians 11, 28. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Sound good, Paul? Doesn't this make you want to sign up for this? But even in those three texts, you get the sense that your personal charisma, your accomplishments, they're really no match for the rigors of ministry. What's going to be of real use to you, according to verse 16, is godly character and doctrinal faithfulness. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, there at the beginning of verse 16, says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So you might say, Keep a close watch on yourself. That sounds like nasal gazing. You're right. It's important. I'll tell you why here in a minute. You also have to keep watching the teaching or the doctrine. That's what's going to help you get through the rigors of ministry. We see that spelled out in the rest of our passage. Just look at verse 12. Talking about godly character, it says, Set the believers an example of speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. You add all that up. You, the first two, are outer qualities, the last three are inner qualities. When you put them all together and you see that Timothy's whole life, not just his professional life, are to exude Jesus. Then the second part, doctrinal faithfulness. Hey, keep, keep watching your teaching. Look at verse 11. It says, command to teach these things. There's a certain authority to what Timothy's works about. Verse 13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Verse 14, do not neglect neglect the gift you have. Well, the gift that he's been given has been the gift of preaching and communicating God's word. Now, I know that sounds obvious, especially the second part. Yeah, sure. You know, do ministry, you should probably know something about the Bible. You're right. 
should probably be able to communicate it in some ways. And you're right, and it is very important. In our tradition, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, normally when pastors are ordained, they have to have completed a Master's of Divinity. Well, Master of Divinity, most of the time, is over 100 credit hours. It's about as long as an undergraduate. They also have to pass five exams. Sacraments, church history, Bible, theology, book of church order. And each of those five exams have three parts. So there's actually 15 tests. The first part's written. The second part, you sit in front of about eight other elders, teaching and ruling elders, and they can ask you questions from your exam. And if you do well there, you get to go from the floor. You stand up in front of a room like this, full of pastors and elders, and they can ask you questions about whatever exam you took. The subject matter of it. You say, golly, that's intimidating. Mark, I can't believe you made the cut. <laughs> and yeah, we didn't ask these four guys, I'm going to ask any of you to get your Master of Divinity and take those five exams. And all of that is to ensure orthodoxy. But when these four leaders were trained, they read well over a thousand pages of content the last several months. Covered all kinds of parts of Christian doctrine from bad baptism to church government to the Trinity to racial reconciliation, all of that. And sure, they're not going to be preaching like I do week in and week out, but in their vows that they're going to take, they have to sign off on the Bible as God's Word. They have to sign off on the Westminster Confession, which is a Presbyterian doctrinal statement, as what they believe to portray the teaching of the Bible. But it's more than that. They've got to be more able than just by their conscience be able to commit to those vows. They're going to need it as they do their work as elders and as deacons. Let me give you some examples. This is for elder. It's really easy when you're in leadership, when you're an elder, to be a people pleaser. You think your righteousness is tied up in what people think about you. But what you need to know as an elder in this situation, instead of being people pleaser, your, your identity has got to be based firmly in the doctrine of justification. That you're righteous before Christ because of his work on your behalf. As an elder, it's, it's really important to have a working theology of suffering. If you don't, when you're walking alongside, when you're shepherding people who are struggling, you've got a bad theology of suffering, you'll be likely to give them easy prescriptions for how to get out of their suffering. But if you've got a real hearty theology of suffering, you'll know you won't be like Job's friends who give these easy prescriptions. Rather, you know that you're going to sit, you're going to listen, you're going to pray, and you're going to hang in there. It's important to have this doctrine Elders, too, get in situations where people are, their lives are back, been backed into a corner by the beast of life. Just looks like there's just no way out. The addiction just can't be overcome. The lost cause. But it's not. Because Jesus rose again from the dead. And if Jesus can rise again from the dead, when he was deader than dead, deader than you and I will ever be, because he died with the wrath of God on his shoulders. If Jesus can raise again from the dead, then anything is possible. You've got to know that. 
Doctrine's important. Think about deacons. One of the areas that deacons oversee is mercy. Deacons, they, they exist to meet the physical needs of those in the church and those in the surrounding community. And if you don't do this from a doctrinal place that we too are poor before the Lord, that we lack any resources before the Lord, if you don't serve out of that place, then you will inevitably be paternalistic in your service. Another area that deacons oversee is financial stewardship. It's really important to have a really good theology of money if you're going to be a deacon. The Bible teaches a lot about money. It teaches that all our money comes from the Lord. It doesn't come as the product of your hard work. The Bible teaches that money is deceptive. The Bible teaches that money can be an idol. It teaches that you can't serve both God and money. So you've got to have a good theology of money. So do you see this? See, doctrine has everything to do with life. Because what we believe about God determines how we live. But the other way, it goes the other way, too. If you don't live according to what you know about God and his word, then you're going to either quit believing the truth, or you will attempt to change God's word. That's why doctrine is important. But then we've kind of got into this sneaky place of seeing why it's so important to watch yourself, right? I mean, think about Timothy. Because of his age, because of his ethnicity, because of his tenant disposition, because of the challenge of pastoring a church where they don't want you there, it would be really easy for Timothy to respond to criticism with defensiveness, with put-downs, with sarcasm, with becoming aloof. But Paul's instructing him in verse 12, he's not to respond to criticism that way. Instead, he's supposed to respond with godly speech and godly conduct. He's got to respond in love and faith and purity. Hard. A friend of mine tells the story of his near ministry failure. He had his failure didn't have anything to do with almost sleeping with someone in his church, wasn't his wife, had nothing to do with stealing money from the church. What his near failure was about was about burnout. He tells the story of he woke up on a Tuesday morning and he wrote his shortest journal entry ever. Here it was. Lord, please calm my heart today. Please calm my heart. He's in one. 36 hours later, he was in the mercy room. He thought he was having a heart attack. But he wasn't having a heart attack. He was having a panic attack. He said he was in danger of doing uh, what one writer, Frederick Beener, warns against. Frederick Beener writes this. He says, ministers in particular and people in caring professions in general are famous for neglecting themselves with the result that they are apt to become in their own way as helpless and crippled as the people they are trying to care for, and thus no longer selves who can be of much use to anybody. A bleeding heart is of no help to anybody if it bleeds to death. End quote. So why do people ministry? Neighbor group leaders, deacons, elders, people who do this full time, why do we continually and consistently neglect ourselves? 
Let me tell you, it's because ministry is like a drug. It gets you high. It feels good to help people. Ministry helps you forget about your own problems. Ministry helps you forget about your own pain because you're so wrapped up in everybody else's. We also neglect to keep watch over ourselves because we get really busy. And the first thing to go in ministry is to watch over ourselves. When you think about these four guys tonight who are getting ordained, you just look at uh, predictably their trajectory over the next few years. I can make some predictions. Uh, it's likely that children are on the way. Children are already on the way for some of them. And there's more coming, I'm sure. You've got more responsibility than them. I can guarantee you that they're all going to get promotions at work. That's a guarantee. And now they're going to have more to do at church. So let me implore the four of you. Let me implore myself that we must keep watch over ourselves or we too will become burnt out. And we too will lead others. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the 19th century British preacher, he writes this about verse 16. He says, we shall usually do our Lord's work best when our gifts and graces are in good order. And we shall do our worst when they are most out of order. So, we must keep watch over ourselves. This isn't a one-time thing. This isn't just something you can kind of sign off on tonight and say, I, I, I did it. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, immerse yourself in these things. In other words, live and breathe these things. See that there's a diligence that's required for soul care and for ministry. It means you're always asking yourself the question, how's my speech? How's my conduct? Am I consistent at work and home and church? Are the messages that I'm preaching to others messages I'm preaching to myself? So for all of us, there should be this observable dynamic, this observable progression in our lives of not just who we are, but who we are becoming. There should be evidence that we're growing in maturity. And it doesn't mean you've got to be perfect. It doesn't mean that you can't have any noticeable flaws or blemishes. But it does mean that you have to know the particularity of your imperfection. It does mean that you've got to be specific about your flaws and specific about your blemishes. I mean, think about Timothy. If you went up behind Timothy at church and you tapped him on the shoulder and you turned around and surprised him a bit and you said, hey, how are you not perfect? What are your flaws and weaknesses? I think he'd be able to go, I'm young. It's tough being biracial. I'm timid. But Christ has qualified me. Brothers, can you say, somebody tapped you on the shoulder tonight, boom, 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 boom. Not of all the ways you've got it together, but of all the places in which you need Christ. And look what happens. 
Look what happens when we have leaders in our church who take their personal holiness seriously. Look at what happens in our church when we have leaders who take doctrine seriously. It's right there in verse 16. It's the thrilling part of the passage and the scary part of the passage. You see what happens? When your leaders keep watch over themselves and their teaching, they save themselves and their hearers. I know that sounds weird. I mean, surely Timothy's already a Christian. He doesn't need to be a pastor. He doesn't need to do ministry to get saved, right? Yeah, you're right. So here's what I think Paul means. I think what Paul is saying is that there's an experience of salvation, and then there's the reality of your salvation. And your experience of your salvation always lags behind the reality of your salvation. Always. See, as Christians, your salvation is sure. It is a reality. You are a son. You are a daughter of God. Totally by virtue of your faith in Christ. So you can't unson yourself. You can't undaughter yourself. My kids, they might grow up and kick and scream and say, I hate being a pastor's kid. I hate being, hate Marshall being my dad. And they run away. They change their name. But the fact remains, they're still my kids. Their DNA is stamped with it. Same thing's true for you. Your salvation is fixed. You belong to God and it's really good news. But just because your salvation is fixed doesn't mean that our experience, the benefits of our salvation is fixed. It changes day to day. It changes moment by moment. So I think what Paul is saying at the end of verse 16 is he's saying that if you keep watch over your doctrine, you keep watch over yourself, that you can be assured that you will, over the long haul, experience Jesus in deep ways. Now, you can still remain a son or daughter of God. The reality can still be true. You're not going to get much experience. So what's at stake here really is your joy. What's at stake here really is the joy of those in our church. What Paul is telling Timothy is the best thing that he can do for himself and the church is to keep watch over himself and his doctrine. So brothers, do the same. It's really good for the rest of us. There might be a temptation for you. You might say, gosh, Marshall, you might as well just invited these four guys and maybe families of church and left the rest of us behind. Uh-huh. What's this got to do with me? Well, let me tell you, if you're a parent, you're a leader. I don't care where you're at in the org chart at your job, you've got influence. And you might say, well, I, I, how can I make an impact for the gospel? I mean, not only am I not it is COVID, it is 2021. I'm so tired. I don't want to be a leader. I mean, volunteer for the nursery or greeting. I ain't got nothing in me, man. I'm just doing good to show up here on Sundays. I understand. But I think the first place to go is to distrust your strength, to distrust your inner dialogue to distrust your personality strengths and to trust Jesus. 
that Jesus really does live his life through you as you keep watch over your life and as you keep watch over what you believe. And I think as you do this over the long haul, you will experience Jesus. You will find him on this path that ends in him. And you'll take some of this with you. Let's pray. Father, it's scary to look at ourselves. Lord, we are scared of what we might find. I find motivations that are shameful. I find a deadness of heart. But Lord, we uh, want to experience you. Lord, we, we know we all need joy. Nobody in here say they don't need, but they don't that they're sick of joy. Lord, we need you. We want to experience the depth of our salvation. Oh Lord, help us. Christ's name. Amen.